Hello and welcome to the EG Property Podcast with me, EG Editor Sam McClary. This episode of the podcast features a conversation recorded at the EG Scottish Cities Live event in Edinburgh on the 10th of November. The wide-ranging panel debate took a look at how investors, developers, occupiers and the public sector can find value in an ever-changing environment. In this 50-minute conversation, we take a look at the sectors that offer the most value, think beds and environmental uplifts, the actions that are potentially curtailing value, think rent freezes, and what responsibility real estate has to change the narrative. Spoiler alert, it's lots. A huge thanks from EG to our partners Savills, Shoesmiths and RSM, and an even bigger thanks to the amazing speakers we had on the evening. Ed Crockett, a director in Savills Operational Capital Markets Team, and Johnston, head of ESG at Investor Northtree, Barry McGowan, partner and head of the Glasgow office at Shoesmiths, Claire Monaghan, partner at RSM, and Michael O'Brien, head office at Projects at South Ayrshire Council. As mentioned, what follows was recorded live in a very windy Edinburgh, so while the audio may not be EG studio quality, the conversation most definitely is. Enjoy. So the topic of today or the title of today's discussion is finding value in a changing world, Um, a very broad title there. So we're going to look at um, how you do that, where you do that and what you do um, to find that value. There are challenges there, obviously opportunities and probably something of a perception conversation too. So I guess let's start with the the, the how what how do we find value here in Scotland in this in this changing world and, and what are those things that might be a hurdle to get in get in the way uh because you're closest to me Ed I knew you, you have to go <laughs> so value at the moment is very difficult to and when capital markets slow as they have done um picking out understanding risk understanding the risk environment is actually key to understanding value so where we where we sit at the moment, from my perspective, is that there is a lot of change within the traditional sectors, and actually the alternative sectors offer a much better risk-adjusted um, value at the moment. And within that, delivering change or being bold enough to go along that change journey, and COVID's forced it, this current environment forced it, the GFC forced it to an extent, but going down that, that change route and being bold enough will actually um, realise new value. So that means going through planning route, that means delivering new development, that means going into sectors that are not established, such as, I want to say space, just because I was absolutely <laughs> blown away, by not blown away, but I was um, very excited by what was in the video. But um, yeah, the residential sectors, obviously I've, I've got to say that because that's what I do, but um, there, there's huge, so much value to come through in that in that part of the market. And what I loved actually was the councillor, was it Bob, who totally got the cycle of, of investment and how that can pay back to communities. So go through housing, that delivers for the commercial sector, that delivers into the, into the council and the council then invests back in the community. And that virtuous cycle of capital investment where it works for everybody um, that's that's a bit of a I haven't answered your question, but <laughs> it gives these guys a bit of a chance to look to the alternatives. Yeah. You've, said, yeah. you've said that, yeah. so that's uh, that's and be bold. A, give us, be bold. Be bold. Um, and for you, I guess answering that question with how do we find value with um, through ESG as as well, and ha- and how we deal with that in the current climate. Yeah. So um, I think one of the first things is everybody agreeing what value is and that's probably quite tricky um at the moment um and you know certainly with covid and things like hybrid working patterns and looking for all that to settle down and you know what's going on in the wider economy but specifically from the kind of esg and particularly the net zero point of view um and that was happening anyway and it's only going to accelerate as we get closer to 2030 the sort of like really you know the first kind of real big milestone that most people have probably set in terms of a target um and and teasing out um you know the kind of understanding of what is and isn't going to be a stranded asset um you know so basically something that you are 
nobody wants to be left holding the baby in terms of the building that you can't let or the building that you can't sell. Um, and the people who are kind of thinking about that now, making an investment and gathering the data and the knowledge that they need so that they understand um, what uh, interventions and improvements have to be made to those buildings are going to be in a much better position than the people that you know wait another five years before they even start thinking about that. Um, so in terms of that, you know, how to find that value, then definitely make sure that you, you know, understand what you've already got um, and have a plan for how you're going to meet these targets that are coming down the line. Thank you very much. Barry. Just picking up, I think, um, and something that Anne said there in terms of what is what is value, I think it's it's certainly now gone beyond pricing and yield focus. It's about the ESG requirements, and that's become top of the list of everyone in terms of where they're looking. And that's that's definitely about the future. Um, and every single sector in the real estate market at the moment has its own challenges in, in meeting those goals and meeting those targets that we've got to face, some more than others. Um, emerging sectors are probably, particularly in the sort of housing side of things, have been pushed down that route. Offices have been pushed down that route. Mm -hmm. How does industrial catch up with a lot of the targets and a, with a with a, a backlog of investment that's not been there over the years to bring buildings like that up to up to scratch? But if people go into it with their eyes open, at the right price with the right yield, but with a capital budget to make improvements to get to those targets, then value you can create value from it. Thank you very much, Claire. I think the education piece is very very important and finding the right skills. So in terms of emerging sectors, making sure that we have the skill sets available to make sure that we can deliver and be first in class in the world in terms of certain space project. But even in terms of the ESG piece, we're hearing a lot of clients say they can't find the right skills or people with the right understanding of what is required going forward. So, you know, colleges are maybe not offering basic construction courses, never mind looking at the new greener technology piece that's going to be so, so important going forward. So it is a case of, well, how do we make sure that is top of the agenda so that we make sure we are yeah. delivering? And how do we do that you know, quickly? Uh, because it's not something that can be achieved uh, tomorrow. Thank you very much. And, and Michael, I'm sure you're going to say if you want to find value, come to South Ayrshire. Uh, I think um, in terms of the, the value proposition, I think Bob, uh, sorry, Councillor Pollock, uh, was, uh, was very succinct in the way that he was, he was, he was talking about the virtuous circle. We're making um, uh, probably... We haven't seen investment of this kind, uh, not not even within within my lifetime, within within South Asia, East Asia, and North Asia. Uh, we're working on a regional partnership proposition, um, and we're very um, we're very conscious that we're we're spending um, Scottish government money, we're spending UK government money, we're also paying, uh, we're also utilising local taxpayers' money to make investments in the future for for our communities, um, and we're doing that with the community wealth building approach and the inclusive growth approach. Um, and I think we were touching on some of that. The, we're making invention, uh, interventions of this kind. We need to make sure that um, with the community wealth building activities that we're looking to ensure that we that's enshrined into the into the contracts and the procurement activities that we have to make sure that we lock as much of the value into North, East and South Asia as much as possible. Fantastic. And, you know, we're at we're, we're a home crowd here um, and I want to come to some of the the where, the the what's, the assets in a, in a minute. The, um, but I want to go to that perception piece because in, in this room, we probably know where the value is, that there is huge value here in um, this wonderful country, Scotland. Um, but externally, are there any challenges or, or barriers there that people aren't really understanding that, um, you know, there is this amazing space industry, there is real value in, in residential, there is um, a huge opportunity in... Um, turning stranded assets into something um, valuable. How do we get that message out? Barry, I'm going to come to you first. I, th I think a big part of that has to come from the political climate in which we, we operate and the, the messaging that is going out globally, because we are competing on a global stage for, for the message. And we're... Where the political rhetoric is confused in the midst of our economic crisis, where we don't seem to be encouraging development and investment, or certainly 
doing things which create uncertainty, which put off that inward investment or make it feel that we are focusing on a different agenda, which isn't necessarily driven by investment and growth in particular sectors, then I think that can be confusing. And if it's confusing, then people just go elsewhere. The money just picks somewhere else to invest. And I think that's part of the, the challenge. If we were, if we had a clear political background to where the country was going, and not just about independence, which is clearly a big issue out there anyway, which constantly confuses, but on the ground in particular in individual sectors. Um, I think that would be definitely a massive benefit for for this for the industry. Claire, you nodded there. Um, there's the what there. How how do we do that? I think the recent rain freeze certainly hasn't helped. And I think that's what Ben's <laughs> I thought I'd let you bring it up. <laughs> I think it's going to appear on on the screen. Yeah. <laughs> That lack of clarity just now is just going to see investment go south of the border or you know further afield, and it's just you know the no surprises approach. We need to be collaborating, and clarity just needs to be there so that we're clear. I mean, built in was starting to see traction. There's definite advantages of it. We were chatting about this earlier, but it, you know things have just halted because you know a lot of investors, especially institutional investors, are thinking, well. Why would I if we're going to have this rain cap? So we need absolute clarity to be able to move forward. Yeah. Can I just of add, add, so which is the, and this is, so I'm Welsh, so don't think I'm English and beating up. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think, and having uh, been responsible for investment across the UK, I think Scotland punches above its weight in terms of its perception, not just within the UK, but within Europe. And I think that there is a strong understanding of culturally what Scotland is and the people that live here and what they do. There's a lot of trust in, in Scotland as a place to invest. And it, the frustration is that Barry just alluded to is that there's a lot of own goals that feel to be achieved at the, at the political level that cut against that. Um, but I, th I think as a place to invest, Scotland, Scotland competes very well given its signs, um, you know, on a comparable basis across you. Thank you. And, and you work for an investor. Mm -hmm. um, does Scotland punch above its weight for, for you? Or does it want to be more? We don't have any investments in Scotland yet. <laughs> um, but we have only been acquiring assets for a year, so I think give us a bit of time. Um, from the, I think, more, from the kind of, um, you know, again, with my sort of ESG hat on, you know, clearly... Um, Scotland does put itself forward as a leader in, in the climate space. You know, Scotland, um, Nicola Sturgeon declared a climate emergency very early on. Um, there's a high degree of ambition, but there is definitely a gap between the ambition and the policy and the regulation that is needed to give investors the certainty that they need to come and make that investment. And I think that gap has to close in order for everybody to just be clear about like what is going to happen and where they're going to go and where they're going to put their money. Um, and, you know, I, I totally, I do agree with Ed. I think it is a, it's an attract, it's, it's an attractive, people are attracted to here, but when they get here and it actually gets down to the nitty gritty of making a deal, um, I think actually in a lot of cases, it just, just seems easier to go somewhere else. Yeah. And Michael, I wonder if you can add to add to that. You've obviously got a portfolio that looking for investment into. Are you? Are you? What sort of conversations are you having? I, th uh, I, th I think what we're trying to do in South Asia, if I can just talk about South Asia specifically and with the investment opportunities we have, um, most of our interventions in in South Asia are around uh, providing um, modern, flexible industrial space, and uh, the lack of it, in, in particularly around the Pacific area, is something that's stymied growth in the past. And we're trying to um, tackle um, systemic market failures that have prevented uh, developers coming in and building the industrial space that we need. Um, so I think we're trying to de-risk that um, and in order to, um, to bring investment into the area. But I, I think what we tend to forget is that we, in, in particular for the space sector, we have enormous geographical advantages. Um, you know, we have a very literate, um, uh, with very literate population. Uh, we have a higher percentage of people who have uh, like tertiary level skills and above, and also our very geography with, with launching things into into polar orbits 
Um, there's nothing farther north than us, essentially. Mm. And we're surrounded by sea. So if you're launching rockets, if you want, if something's going to go, <laughs> <laughs> going to go wrong, we're surrounded by protective seas. So we, um, we have a lot of um, geographical advantages. And people are going to paper, which is amazing. Uh, my learning of the day. You talked about de-risking de there, and then we've and we've heard the the, the rent freeze men, mentioned already. That sounds like risking. Um, uh, so, uh, is there a misunderstanding about that rent freeze that is putting people off, or do, or is there has the government risked um, um, that as a sector for people to come and in, in, invest in? Ed, because that's that's to me. Yeah. Um, there's a huge amount of misunderstanding from both sides. So unfortunately, I think there's, at the government level, there's misunderstanding of what they were actually setting out to do. Well, the, there's misunderstanding about the implications on the market. They've got a very strong understanding of how it appears in print, what it does from a headline perspective, what that means from a rhetoric perspective, and positioning different to England. And I think that is their main motivation in bringing this in. I think it's got very little to do with cost of living. Their own research says that across the private rented sector, rents on average go up 0.9%. So putting in place a freeze that sits at zero doesn't make any difference about in-tenancy growth. It's meaningless. And that prior to the PRT, it was something like only 15% of landlords ever put in a rent. As a result of the PRT and the introduction of an annual rent review, that's, jumped, that's doubled to 30%. But it still leaves 70% of landlords that actually sit the rent at the same level. So... So why are they used, why have they decided to jump on landlords, be extremely aggressive in the rhetoric, except to gain headlines? And that rhetoric has influenced landlords. It's influenced investors about whether they want to invest in Scotland within a regime that they don't know or understand and seems to not know or understand them. And when you when you're talking about value, you can't control markets, but you can control risk. And it's added a layer of risk that you can't control. So if you're looking at the same asset in Manchester or Leeds or wherever else, identical asset to Glasgow, you would pay more for it in Leeds or Glasgow, sorry, Leeds or Manchester than you would in Glasgow, because in Glasgow, it's more risky. So you need a higher return. So that very simple understanding of investment <laughs> economics philosophy has been totally missed for no apparent gain. <laughs> the flip side is that actually, if you do read the detail, it, it's messy, but it can work and it's okay because it's only about a rent freeze. It's not about, um, and it's a, it's a rent freeze in tenancy. So they're not setting rents. The market will set the rents. And so tenancies in Scotland vary depending on your apartment or in a house, but generally it's about 2.6 years. So you can reset your rents every, give or take three years, even without this legislation. And that actually aligns to most investors, institutional investors models, where they'll only be looking for 1% to 2% growth in tenancy anyway. So actually, from an investment perspective, it's not bad. It's the rhetoric yeah. that causes the damage, not the detail. So there's misunderstanding on yeah. every side. Barry, you had your head in your hands for a second there. <laughs> I wonder if that was because you don't agree with that or because you do. No, no, I think it's more frustration because I think I think the key issue is that the the headlines and the rhetoric that's coming out of it, it appears to be focused towards protecting the vulnerable in our society in the middle of a cost of living crisis, but doesn't actually do that job at all. What it does is sets limits for people that may have no cost of living crisis affecting them, but their rent doesn't go up either. Um, and the very people who are affected by it, and particularly the housing associations have commented, it's not, it's not targeting anything that they weren't looking at doing anyway. Yeah. Um, and I think it's also, as, as Ed says, once you get into the legislation, actually, the detail of it, once you understand it, and I think explaining it to clients after the, we actually had a few deals which were completing the day after that was announced, and every single one of them was pulled by the fund. Mm -hmm because they just didn't know what it was going to say. It took a few weeks for it to come out, look at the detail, they go, right, that's not as bad. We weren't expecting to put the rents up within the next 12 months anyway, but it's what's going to come next. If that's come out without any real thought as to the impact on the market, is it then going to be further rent caps or a bit more aggressive controls? But again, the not knowing what it's going to be is the issue. 
if they came out and said, this is what we're planning to do over the next five or ten years, we're going to introduce this and it's going to fix rents, you can't increase it by more than X percent, you can't do it without that, people understand the metric in which they're valuing the opportunity. But not knowing it adds that layer of risk that Ed mentioned. Yeah. Which means people just don't bother. Yeah. They go elsewhere. Yeah. Sorry, Sam, can I just say, I think there's, um, I mean, I don't, I don't um, really work in the residential market, so the, the kind of the market impacts and everything is, is not my forte. But what I would like to say is I think there might be a bit of a lot of unintended consequences here as well, um, you know, because this is obviously one policy of the Scottish Government. But other things that they've got going on, last year they published their heat and buildings strategy and they are looking at um, a bill for that. Next year there was an update published um, last week on that. And from April 2024, um, any source of heat in a new building in Scotland has to be zero carbon, so basically no gas. Um, and, you know, the impact of this particular decision, you know, again, saying that it's trying to protect the vulnerable, but the people who those policies are need to protect are the people that are going to be vulnerable to fuel poverty. Um, and you just wonder whether actually this is just going to make all of those things so much harder to achieve and actually have a much bigger impact then on the people who are in fuel poverty now as we try and kind of move away from um, using gas as our main source of heat in Scotland. How does this industry communicate then those unintended consequences to the policy makers, to, to government? Can it? Should it? <laughs> That's a yeah. really good challenge, but the thing I love about it is, is it's not rocket science, and I love the way that that <laughs> Um But um, it's not that hard. So I know it's unintended consequences, but it was really obvious. Yeah. Yeah. It was really obvious, but they don't care. And the frustration that, and um, I was nodding, it's because well, there's been so much reams of consultation and the industry has put in so much effort to go along that journey, it just gets ignored. And that's the frustration because at the end of the day, they don't care, they want their headlines and that's what's driving, that's what's driving the ambition. It's not actually... I need to be careful what I say, but it's not actually <laughs> doing, doing, um, you know, having a positive influence on their communities and the people of Scotland. It's can we, can we dress this up to look good? And effectively, the Scottish government is greenwashing a lot of their policies. Yeah, I think it's who who is the audience yeah. for this stuff? Yeah. That's yeah. really, you know, who is this for? And I don't think it's for us or you know our investors or you know clients or whatever. It, it, it these things that these announcements from the government are aimed at a very particular kind of set of their supporters um, and I think you know if you look at NPF4 which has been laid before ministers this week it went through three rounds of public consultation and um, a, you know a, a long period of parliamentary scrutiny and you know I've not had time to read it in detail but I think it is better for that but you know there, there is so much consultation there's no lack of consultation it's just are those comment? You know, are all of those comments really being taken on board? Yeah. I think okay. it's thinking about the full cycle as well. Obviously, the councillor spoke about that. Just in terms of what you're, you're trying to achieve, you need the houses to attract the people to then be able to deliver the project. And if the housing supply is not there, if people decide that BTR, you know, they're just not going to invest, then we're not going to attract anyone to the area. So again, we've invested a huge amount in the area. But we don't have the housing supply, we don't then attract the talent, and it's that vicious cycle, isn't it? So it's the collaboration piece and thinking of, well, where's our end goal? Who do we need to attract and how do we do it? And if we're not working together and we're just thinking of a very narrow audience, then it's impossible to achieve. Well, not fantastic, that's not it. It's all But putting a slight positive spin on <laughs> is that there's there is a real opportunity a there? True because, age. So yeah, I know I'm, I'm working on it, but um, there is a real opportunity there because the Scottish government is very well engaged with with this small community. They are very open to to having conversations. It's just then the implementation of that consultation that is so frustrating. Yeah. So there is a huge opportunity for it to happen, and I know investors who come to Scotland as a result of that. 
they've then been deterred because it has just been that bit too difficult. But when you start and say, well, actually, we could maybe introduce you to a government minister, et cetera, et cetera, there's, there's lots that you can get that traction. It's just about some of the own goals that, that they're, yeah, mm. scoring. Mm. And, and then it comes, you know, all of your jobs, right, in communicating that to the investor developers yeah. out, out there. Yeah. pressures on, on on you guys um, so that's that <laughs> there we go um while I stick with um politics and and resi that um many of you have already submitted questions so thank you for that and i'm, I'm gonna um turn to some of those now instead of waiting waiting um till to the end um if you are here i will call out your name um if you can't remember what you asked i've got it written so i can read it on your on your behalf but is uh andy mallon here he's not he had a great conversation uh question i'll i will ask it uh um sticking with the sort of um is he here no um uh with the sort of um rental freeze rental and rental growth so asking um can the uh, btr sector in scotland deliver and sustain the levels of rental growth we're seeing elsewhere in the in the uk to insulate investors and landlords from the higher interest rate environment could we do any of us do that um and if not how can new developments be unlocked if those rental levels do stagnate ed so so the important is is, is understanding that the rent freeze doesn't affect asking rents as a result of the, and this is again the own goal, as a result of the implementation of the rent freeze on in-tenancy rents, landlords immediately put rents up because <laughs> so so those that are looking to get access to the sector suddenly are having to pay more. So it's a direct correlation between the Scottish government influence. They've affected private renters immediately. So so the answer is yes, you can continue to generate rental growth. The other flip side, and this is definitely with a with a um glass half full approach is that we are moving more towards european model the yields in europe are are lower than in the uk and that's partly as a result of the more benign rental growth you have in tenancy the lower churn rates and therefore the lower operational costs that you have so if we can move more towards that model there's potentially keep the same capital value it's just it's slightly lower risk talking about what you control risk return and markets it's slightly lower risk investing in that product so actually on the flip side as long as they stop poking it, <laughs> uh, this could work out. This could work out okay, and you could look at it and say, "Well, we anticipate that reform is going to come in England and Wales." And anyone who thinks that it isn't is—they're um, not looking at the detail. Uh, so, so potentially, Scotland could be a more open investor climate as long as we can just let everyone understand what the legislation is and stop mucking about. Barry? Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And I think the I think the European model is where we will end up, you think, at some stage as the as the market in, in the UK matures. And and that is one which is as Ed says, returns are, are far lower, but are far more certain. There is a infrastructure in place in terms of legislation, controls and rent controls and and capital investment budgets, which trigger rent increases, which mean investors are entirely comfortable and can invest pension fund money for 30, 40 years and know where their returns are going to be and have a capital budget to make sure that the properties are are, are enhanced and, and refurbed when they need to be, because that's the system that's been in place for decades there. And that's where we are at the very start of this journey, I think. I think we, will, we need to be going in that direction, because if we don't, We'll have this up and down uncertainty, rental growth, but fall off a cliff, investment disappears back up again, and that just doesn't get us where we need to be everywhere else in the economy, because this sector in particular, I think, will drive a whole lot of other investment, and a lot of, in particular, city centre regeneration, which is desperately needed, I think, in nearly all of our city centres, not just post-COVID, but they've been sorely lacking over the last several decades. So having that and having something in place which has more of a vision is where we should be going. Let, let's stick with that city town town centres as well, because it's all very well if we have a, a great BTR, great residential sector, but if there's nothing for people to do, yeah. then surely, um, as you say, you know, the, every sector sort of feeds off each other. How do we make sure that our 
cities are are full and and vibrant and does is is politics there poking where it shouldn't poke or is it is it doing the right right things so it's again. jump in anyway. I, I I think it's actually this this triggers something I was thinking about today, and it ties into something which um, one of without being particular about Shoesmith, one of our values as a business, um, and it's about delivering together. And I think that's a very if if people work together, that's fine. But if we've got a common goal and we know where we're going, and this is public and private sector investors, developers, occupiers, retail, leisure. We all can see where we're going and we all work to try and get there and we try and get there without pulling off in different directions. And I think we can achieve what our city centres deserve, which is vibrant, happy, safe places where people want to live and work. Whereas at the moment, what we've got is we're trying to drag people back into an office, in an environment which has suffered over the last couple of years with derelict retail units, bars and restaurants which haven't reopened because there's just a complete lack of investment. But that joined up thinking is what we need to make that happen. Cliff, I shared earlier, uh, I know yesterday there was an emergency summit in Aberdeen focused just on that. And it was a number of different stakeholders just pulling ideas together. How do we get people back into the city centre to Union Street? And it's just looking at various ideas. And I think it's great that the conversations are starting, but it's about making sure the red tape's not there to prevent the, the actual ideas coming to fruition. And that's you know very, very, very important. But it comes back absolutely to that collaboration piece that Barry mentioned, is you know, everyone working together. I'm going to ask you all in a minute, um, where where are we going? Um, so we can all collaborate on that. But And you, you talked about stranded assets earlier. And I think, you know, we all see them in our in our town centres, and how how can um, how can we find value in those and bring life back to to city centres? And are, are some people doing exciting things, are some people doing things that actually um, they're not they're not really regenerating those those properties. I mean, yeah, some people are doing exciting things, and I think there are. So, I mean, one I think one kind of really good example um, is in in Glasgow is the role that um, organisations like the universities are playing, particularly the University of Strathclyde, which is looking at its, you know, so its its um, campuses within the city centre, and you know they are looking at putting in, um, you know, decarbonising their buildings, putting in a heat network. Um, and bringing together lots of people to to effectively share that knowledge wider than just their own buildings and uh, you know across the whole city, um, and obviously they've got a vested interest in that because they're trying to attract students and you know the city wants as many of those students as possible to stay, um, and I think you know I'm got, not going to take it from I know Ed's got a really <laughs> class of stats. Don't take my stats. I'll have forgotten it by then. You know that. I think there's, there were obviously a lot of lessons learned, or there should have been during COVID, and there were a lot of changes made, some of which need to be kept. And I do wonder whether actually everyone's still on the same page about realising that where we're going is actually somewhere a bit different now, and that we need to kind of be like be realistic about that, rather than, as Barry said, trying to kind of force back to, a, you know, making the city what it was you know, 10 years ago, or even, you know, like pre-2008, is there still a bit of like, that was seen as the heyday and people are trying to get back to that and we are in a different world now and we need to do different things. Um, and I think that that's what, you know, maybe not so much Edinburgh because it's got its own, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty unique, but it does also have its own challenges. But certainly Glasgow, it needs to look at what how it functions as a city, how it functions within the whole of the central belt and what it does for Scotland as a whole. Um, and you know, and, and rather than just being a place that people come into to work and shop, what else can you do there that is that is going to create that vibrancy and actually encourage people to want to live there rather than just do those other things? Come on, Ed, give us your number. This nice little study thing, but um, so we were talking about the Glasgow's got an ambition to double the number of people living in the city centre. And within the city centre at the moment, there's 7,100 households. So in a city of, depends on how you cut the, cut the, the, 
watershed, but it's got about a million people living in the Glasgow conurbation. And there's only 7,000 households who live in the city centre. That's actually kind of like Manchester 15 years ago. So you've seen what Manchester can do. And I think if you want to, if you want to get Glasgow city centre up and running again, people living in the city centre brings such a vibrancy to, to what's going on. And so I used to work in Glasgow and up to 2012 or something. And it just felt like there was a new sandwich shop on every corner. There was a new restaurant coming in. There were some really innovative restaurants. And I think COVID's really, really hurt Glasgow city centre. Around the main core streets, it's still busy between the stations. But you go off the beaten track. There's restaurants now that only open Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, not even on the weekends. There's just there's just nobody there. It's a ghost town. So anyway, so this ambition to double the population uh, 62% of those 7,000 households are within the rented sector. And Glasgow City Council are currently looking at introducing a paper to restrict the numbers of rental developments in Glasgow City Centre. So they want to double the population, deliver, they now need to deliver thousands of units a year, and they want to deliver it to a population that doesn't currently live there. When there is, you look at where people live if you're not within the rent sector, so you take a slightly older demographic, generally with children, there are no primary schools within the, the um, city centre um, ring road, there are no secondary schools, there are no doctor's surgeries, so the, the requirement for investment to go in to deliver that ideal of we want family housing, well, okay, great. Are you going to invest the likely billions of pounds to, de to deliver that? And are you going to do it now? Because you've got to deliver it for the thousands of units that you want to build for the people that don't currently live there. So their only way forward is to embrace built to rent. This is the sales. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's real. And, uh, but the benefit of doing that is you introduce a demographic that's already there. But they are also those that don't draw from those public services, so don't need the infrastructure there to deliver it. And they've been proven that the models undoubtedly when you look at the impact of student developments into um, local communities is that they then go and use the bars and the shops and the cafes and the restaurants. They pay back. So why not use the best catalysts for development you've possibly got when that's the market that wants to live there? Why would you then come out with a draft policy that says we want to move away from rent? So that's what we were chatting. That was <laughs> so so is, that, is that the where we want to go? We want to find these catalysts? So my answer is, put loads more built around in every note. So it is, it is. <laughs> my answer is, I think they need to take a totally different approach to planning, full stop. Within, they need to look, where do we want to build vibrancy? We need a different approach to planning. Potentially have a, a design brief specifically for those city centres. We've got some amazing buildings that are that are empty. They need to rip up the red tape and just let it be effectively PD, but for um but for all of those buildings. Get people back in, get people spending money and, and businesses will allow it to thrive. Yeah. I'm so happy we've got to the P word. Um, finally, we're 10 minutes left and finally planning when we're talking about value has, <laughs> has, has come up. Sorry, and I, I jumped in over. Uh, no, the, I was just going to say, I think the place that is doing that well is Dundee. Yeah. Why? Um, partly because uh, there is strong leadership and vision, um, but that's what they focus on. It, it is totally transformed from what it was. You know, I mean, I used to go to Dundee a lot because there was a, a site that I worked on. and it, I mean, it was a like a, an oil terminal so it wasn't the best anyway but but driving into the city and what you know what I what I saw it, um you know it was quite sad looking and when you go now those that same area has the VA it, it's got all the new public realm that they've put around discovery it's it's just it's absolutely I think mind-blowing what they've done um and you know and, and I don't see any reason why other cities of Scotland can't do the same. And they're, so they're progressive, whereas I think lots of local authorities, not just within Scotland, are defensive. And I just think, given the environment we currently have, we need so many more progressive local authorities when it comes to planning. Michael, progressive? I think local placemaking is something that causes a lot of tensions. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think we've touched on, on, on some of the things is that, um, South Asia in particular, we, we, as, 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 um, if you look at the, the, demog the demography of the place, we've actually got declining population as an aging population. Um, there is, um, 
certainly within the planning realm, there's African resistance to to um, aggressive placemaking activities. And I'll just leave that. Okay. <laughs> Um, so I'm going to throw um, out some more questions. There's one right here, clearly, in a, in a mo. But before I come to you, just so everyone can ponder on, final question um, when we come back to it, um, is I want all of you to have ready for the audience one takeaway, one thing that everyone in this room can do to help find that, help people find the value here in Scotland. So ponder on that. But if I could have a microphone down the front here for this gentleman there's a question thank you, thank you. um can i thank the panel for their comments and i agree with almost everything that's been said tonight but you asked a couple of questions and we danced around the handbags <laughs> we actually do need some leadership yeah. and leadership who are going to encourage and facilitate you spoke about john alexander in dundee Great leader with civic pride, and he is proud of his city, and his city reflects that. I'm sorry, but in Glasgow, it's like a third world country at times when you see the roads the way they are. And we've got leaders who are controlling, frustrating, delaying, and certainly not encouraging development. The one thing I would like each of you, if you could, is to stand up and actually tell our leaders and our politicians that their actions are currently frustrating inward investment into Scotland. Because I've engaged this week as some of the organisations within Scotland here in the property sector to try and reverse the nonsense of the housing minister putting a rent freeze and the implications and the unintended consequences, which came about as a result of no consultation whatsoever. But they're now telling us, but Ken, it really isn't as you're saying, because nobody's saying and sticking their head above the parapet to say, as a result of this rent freeze, we are not prepared to invest in Scotland. And we actually need people to tell them of the implications, because if not, we deserve what we get. Because if we're not prepared to stand up and tell the politicians and speak truth to power, they'll get the nonsense we've had recently. We had, for a period of time, no adults in Downing Street, and the guilt market collapsed. Then we're just starting to see something resolved, and you've got Patrick Harvey going for the headlines. And the direct implication of that is there is a lot of institutions, you've said it yourselves, were not prepared to invest in Scotland as a consequence until some certainty emerges. And you need to actually see it because they don't believe he's done anything wrong. I'm sorry. So there's a then, huge. I'll try to find where the question is. <laughs> <laughs> there's a huge responsibility there for this industry, isn't there, to stand up and. Uh, if the um, government here is open to that collaboration, that conversation, then the responsibility is on everyone here to say. That ain't working. It's it's nonsense to to use your word. Yeah, Ken Ken knows that we all try very hard on yes. that, and it's you know um, I think Robin's here. Robin's had an absolutely thankless task when he was chair of SBF Residential Investment Management Committee, and you know the commitment of people to make genuinely look at societal change, add value that isn't just in pounds and pence, but in people's lives. From, from the property industry side, and you're looking across the table that people seem to have no interest in that whatsoever. It's, it's unbelievably frustrating. And, and they have to beaten us down a bit. I think it's fair to say, you know, they've, they've got it through. My one flip side of that is that there are investors who are prepared to invest. So uh, we can't go back and say, I've lost all these deals and they're now not happening and your yeah. deals are happening. And I know that I've got two deals that are under offer that are looked at it and said, actually, it's okay. Within a sort of bloody mindedness, I want to go and say that too. But unfortunately, the reality does. Well, I say unfortunately, it means we've got a functioning market, which is a positive. But um, th yeah, we can't say that because that's not true. But, but can we say, though, that it has a detrimental effect on the yeah, market? And we do. And we we are. And you, they're not believing us. Well, no, they're just not. They are not listening. It's head do, in the side. Yeah. Do you think they, they don't believe us because there is there is absolutely a them and us in, in, 
and the the political climate is very much that we're only saying that because it's costing us money yeah. and we're not making the profits that we should make. And that is what sells because they slap to their the electorate or the particular focused part of it that they're aiming at to say, these are guys who are just actually here to take all their money away and they're not interested in the community and placemaking and investment. They're just about profit. And there'll be some investors. That is their driving goal, and actually they just want to make a fast buck. But the majority of the industry is actually about what what is that 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 drives the cycle of everything. And without it, it all just falls apart. So it's it's getting that message across. And I I do find it very frustrating that despite that, it's just a you're talking to a brick wall to a certain extent with certain mm. individuals, I would say. I think there just needs to be a few more stories. I think Springfield Properties have come out publicly and said they are moving away or at least halting uh, any further work with affordable housing and the private sector, uh, private rented sector just now. But again, linking to your point, I think that came along with their uh, results and their property. Yeah, exactly. Probably it was hidden in that. But I think the more developers that can come out and actually just say, we're actually we're parking decisions at the moment. It is going to slow things down. That then will start to build traction, and people will have to listen. But people need to be bold enough, as you say, to stand up and say we're not partaking at the moment. But this is about jobs and houses and local businesses. It's not just about some big PLC in the sky taking money off people. It's it's nothing that exists around us without it. Yeah. It's, it's all about getting those right headlines, right? And if, if only there was a um, medium for yeah, that it's just... in this room. Uh, yeah. um, we, we, but time scales as well. And, um, I mean, you know, there will always be a market, um, but is that market going to deliver what they say they want as well? Mm-hmm. And, you know, is it are you going to be scrabbling around for short-term wins and never actually getting to the, you know, at the same time still trying to sell people this vision of the country that we want to live in, but we can't ever get there because we've not created the certainty that people need to come and invest for the the long-term periods that we need to actually have these greener, cleaner, and more community-focused places. Yeah. Um, so we're going to go to that one one thing that we should all, we should all do. Um, um, my, my ask of everyone here is to if, um, to talk about those unintended co- um, consequences. Come to us, and we will help um, uh, spread the message and, and get people to to listen. Because I think it's uh, we can't always talk about the the opportunities in this industry. We have to talk about the challenges so the opportunities come. So that would be mine. Um, Michael, I'm going to start with you. Wow. Okay. Um, one thing is just a reminder that we're investing a quarter of a billion pounds in the Asia economy. That's North, East, South Asia, all three Asia's working as a region together. Um, and we're looking to unlock um, the potential of, of the people of Asia. Um, we're looking to do that with friends from the private sector. So we're looking to de-risk these activities and we're looking for investment and we're looking for partners, essentially. So if anyone wants to speak to me afterwards, I think we've spoken a lot tonight about collaboration and how important that is. So I think that's one of my takeaways. It comes back to your partnership point as well. So being able to kind of join the dots and think of all aspects when we join sectors. Um, and I think that's absolutely key to moving uh, this sector forward in particular. Thank you very much. Barry. I think it's actually maybe to pick up on what Ken was saying. It is about being vocal and not just expecting someone else to fix what you are frustrated by in terms of the problems that are underlying. And the market is actually putting your neck out there and actually talking up and telling people when they think they've got it wrong. But back it up with some evidence. Yeah. Okay. And? Um, I would really encourage everybody to focus on whatever you can do to help upskill like the whole, everybody, you know, everything from, so we have a real skill shortage, um, everything from, you know, a third fewer planners than we had in 2009, all the way through to all the engineers and everything that we're going to need to to, um, to decarbonise our, our building stock. And I think people need to be much more, you know, again, collaboration and but everything up to, and, and also that speaking truth to power 
um, all of that requires us to be open about and sharing our knowledge um, and, and helping where we can to make sure that we have um, the skills base that we need to be able to genuinely say to people, come and invest here and we can deliver what you, what you want. Thank you. Ed, I started with you and then yeah. mainly I'm ending with you. So <laughs> yeah. try and add something else. Yeah, so I'm not going to add particularly, I'm going to build on actually and it's sort of changed as we've gone through because I think you're so right. It's so easy to just sit up here and bash government and no matter where you do this around the country, the same old stuff will get churned out because it, it's, you know, but actually, there is something behold on top of us to change the the dialogue that we're having. But I actually think it, in Scotland anyway, it seems to have been hitting a bit of a brick wall. So we have to be a bit smarter about how we do it. And when we've so there's a, there's a climate emergency, and that's an easy thing to announce. But we've had a housing crisis for thirty years, and no one's done anything about it. Anyway, so my I think because people don't like development. Development is a dirty word. Outside of real estate, people don't trust it. People see it as profit making and change and ripping things up. Whereas actually, it's the only way we can get to a net zero future is change. That's the only way we can do it. We can't carry on doing what we've been doing. So I think it's beholden on us to explain to everyone, you know, kids, family, um, you know, parents outside the school gates, to explain what we do, why we make a difference, why we're really important. And uh, that sounds wrong. Uh, <laughs> why the industry is really important and not to fear development and that we need to have loads more homes and we need to have loads more um, carbon neutral initiatives etc but and this is an amazing industry full of well-meaning well well educated well considered people and we're trying to do the best we can at the at the frustration of government and if we can do that well people will actually turn it around and go hang on government why are you getting in the way? Because we've got so many people that fear change and stand against planning applications because they they don't understand what we're trying to achieve. So maybe if we work better at explaining to everybody what we're trying to achieve, we can fundamentally shift that balance. I think that's that's quite a big ask. But <laughs> I don't think it is a big ask. I think that, you know the industry does that; just doesn't talk about it enough, yeah. and that's what we've you know we've we've touched on here that if we want people to see the value there is in in what real estate does and, and particularly here then um, we as a community need to educate we need to collaborate and we need to be vocal and take action and mm. and have some pride in, yeah. in what this industry does i think it's uh it's a wonderful um point to to end on um and um i think everyone should put their hands together for our wonderful panel for a very engaging chat.